0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world? The choice, Christ, or culture for us? We can choose Christ. Now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, feed Jake. He's been a good dog, my best friend. Stayed with me to the end. If I should die before I wake, please feed Jake. Country music. There's something about it that just tells it like it is. The girls left my radio on country station, so I've just left it there for a week or so. I can't believe all the stuff that I hear in country music. A lot of it will depress you. Don't listen too much of it because you can't stand the pressure. But you can understand what, uh, what they're saying and you get the meaning. Uh, she jerked out my heart and stomped that sucker flat. You do understand that, can't you? <laughs> I was listening to a song by the Judds. And I just heard it a couple of times, I'm not sure I got all of it, but it, it seemed to be saying 101 reasons why I ought to leave you, but then 102 reasons why I should stay. And that's a pretty good picture of where most uh, marriages are. But then I heard a song, with something about men, I don't know the title of it, but uh, they buy you dinner, open your door, other than that, what are they good for? Men. They want a girl just like the girl that dear old dad married. That makes me so mad, talking about men. Well, you can't beat them up because they're bigger than you are. You can't live with them, and you can't just shoot them. Men, we're talking about men. Well, somebody said, if men are God's gifts to women, God must believe in gag gifts. (laughs) And another woman said... God created man, backed away, and said, I can do better than that, and he created woman. I read about a chain letter letter that a lady got, and it said, send no money, just bundle up your husband and send him to the name that appears at the top of the list. Add your name to the bottom of the list and make five copies of this letter and send it to five of your unhappily married friends. In one year, when your name gets to the top of the list, you will receive 78 husbands. Surely one of them is bound to be better than the one you got rid of. P.S. Don't break the chain. One woman did and got her old jerk back. <laughs> Catherine Helpern said, sometimes I wonder if men and women are suitable for each other. Perhaps they should uh, live next door and just visit occasionally. Well, when you really think about marriage and about intimacy, marriage seems to be the inversion of that fairy tale, The Beauty and the Beast. You marry the prince and then you discover the beast. The truth is there is the beast in all of us. There is the dark side in all of us. For three weeks I've been talking about marriage and intimacy. We're talking about the tender merging of body, mind, and soul in an atmosphere of trust and safety that's based on unconditional love to an imperfect person so that in that environment of safety and trust one is free to be himself and herself. The sad thing is that most marriages do not have that kind of intimacy. And by the way, when I when I'm preaching these sermons on intimacy, I cannot cover all the bases. I cannot deal with all the exceptions. I deal with basic principles. I know in some cases the wife is more intimate than the husband. In some cases the husband is more intimate than the wife. I know sometimes it's a role reversal. Those are the exceptions. I know sometimes the wife is working harder than the man. Sometimes the man is working harder than the woman at having an intimate relationship. And we're not to have stereotypes. We're not to to say this is the recipe for the ideal intimate marriage. There is no such animal because we're all unique people and we bring into marriage different gifts and a different gift mix. So there is no recipe that's guaranteed to bring you the kind of marriage that God wants you to have. You and your husband are to get along before God, identify your gifts, what what you have brought into this marriage, who you are, your temperaments, your personalities, your gifts, and under God, work to build an intimate relationship. We've talked about intimacy being emotional closeness. And in every message, I've used the acrostic close, C-L-O-S-E. The C standing for commitment. The L standing for listening. The O for openness, transparency, honesty. The S for sensitivity, meeting one's needs, being sensitive to the needs of the partner. And the E for empathy, walking in the other person's shoes, seeing life from the other person's perspective. So building an intimate marriage is a commitment to listen and to understand and to show affection. One out of Ten marriages really knows intimacy. Five out of ten marriages break up, split, divorce. So the need is there. I want to give you the two biggest reasons why marriages fail. The first one is unrealistic fairy tale expectations. Fairy tale expectations. And I'm talking especially to the woman today because I'm talking about an intimate wife. The American woman is unrealistically, almost hopelessly romantic. Now she comes by naturally because the little girls grow up that way. They grow up playing with dolls and putting on clothes and makeup and dealing with pretending and fantasy and fairy tales. That's how they grow up. That life is just absolutely wonderful and one day your prince is going to come and ride up on a white horse and sweep you up and you're going to ride off in the sunset. It just isn't that way. Your prince isn't coming. You got him. And what you see is what you got, except worse. An imperfect person with emotional warts. But guess what? You are also imperfect. So if we're going to build an intimate relationship, we need a good dose of reality. You see, we have this idealized form of love. We get it from books and from magazines and from music and from materialism and from the media, from television, from the soap operas. And when you compare what you have with what you see on television, you see, that what you see on television comes with makeup and a multi-million dollar budget and 20 retakes of every one of those scenes. That's not reality. I've been on the set for some of this stuff in Hollywood and places like that in Florida and uh, just to see all that, you know, it's a setup. The whole thing is a setup. It's not real. It's make-believe. And somehow women get in their minds that that's real. There's this idealized form of love and they keep searching. They call it soul hunger that you're going to find that person who is going to sweep you off your feet and meet all those needs in your life? Listen to me, listen carefully. No one can meet all those needs in your life. There is not a man alive that can meet all the needs in your life. You've just got to understand that romance is something that is up and down, it ebbs and flows. It is not, there is no such thing as passion that stays consistent. Passion comes as a result of working and building an intimate relationship. That's the reward. But if we expect that to be the thing that just happens because two people have come together and want it, we'll be sadly disappointed. And the trap is that, that the woman who doesn't get this idealized kind of love, she is willing to go look for it. And she'll reach a point where she is willing to forsake her family to give up her family and sacrifice them in order that she can find that idealized kind of love, chasing rainbows, chasing chill bumps. Now listen to me, ladies. Don't get mad at me. Just listen to me. If some of you would spend as much time working on your marriage, working on your relationship, working on you and strengthening that relationship as you do on dreaming of what you would like to have, you would have a better marriage. So let's be realistic. Let's do away with the fantasy. Let's work on what is there, your situation, and let's make it something wonderful. And that promise is available to every one of us who know Jesus Christ. The second big problem in marriage that causes marriage failure is mutual misunderstanding. A failure to understand and appreciate the differences. You see, the basis of conflict is that I am me and you are you. And so there is conflict. And somehow we, we want to make the other person like we are. And if you work and work to make that other person like yourself, when you get part of that accomplished, you'll not like it at all because that's what you think you want, but you don't really want that. It's the uniqueness, it's the the difference that adds the dynamic to this thing called marriage. Remember in the passage over in Genesis chapter 2, we talked about God's plan for intimacy, that we leave and we cleave, we stick to one another in commitment, and then we become one flesh, that intimacy, and there is no shame, there's transparency. And you remember how God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, so he brought... He was to bring a helper for Adam, and then he paraded all these animals in front of Adam. And then after he paraded all the animals, and Adam had named the animals, then God provided a wife. And when Adam saw Eve, his response was, in the Hebrew, a transliteration, wow, she is different from me. I like what I see. Wow. Now, had she been like Adam, his response would have been, yuck. Because he didn't want somebody like him. He wanted somebody different. And so God gave him Eve. And by the way, God did not create Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve. And they were different, and they have always been different, and they always will be different. Listen to me. We have always been equal and we will always be equal. We have never been identical and we never will be identical. But the difference is not our disadvantage, it's our dynamic. It's not to be our competition, it's to be our completion. We're not identical, but we are equal. Mutual misunderstanding. So somehow we've got to learn to understand our mate. And that's the basis of all problems in marriage, and and that's what tears at intimacy. Now, you'll never fully understand your mate. That's impossible because you're so uniquely different. One renowned psychiatrist spent 30 years, he said, after spending 30 years of studying women, I don't have any idea what it is they want Well, that's from a man's viewpoint. Well, and and you would have the same viewpoint come from the other direction because we cannot understand fully. But in order to correct the misunderstandings, we need to understand some things. One is creation. By creation, God made us uniquely different. The second thing is a chemical bath. You may not be aware, but that medical research has concluded that between the 18th and 26th week that something happens that forever separates the sexes. That there is this uh, chemical bath of, of sex hormones that washes over the brain of the boy child and that causes important changes. And uh, the right side of the brain receives just a little bit and, the, and the, the fibers connecting the two sides of the brains receive just a little bit of damage. Okay, women, men are brain damaged. That's what you want me to say, right? <laughs> All right, I just said it. At least some of these fibers have been damaged in that chemical wash. Some of you women said, I knew something was wrong, I knew it. Well, and so as a result of that, from that point on, he is left-brained oriented. Man is lateral in his thinking. And he he favors that left brain, which is the, the factual and the aggressive and the logical. On the other side, women are bilateral. In other words, they access both sides of the brain at the same time, simultaneously. They can switch from one side of the brain to the other. They favor the right side of the brain, which is nurturing and caring and loving and affectionate. It doesn't really seem fair, but it's almost like God has given women a built-in marriage manual. I mean, they just automatically, those things that create intimacy and and help a marriage, the tenderness and the love and the nurturing and the caring, uh, that comes easily for a woman because that's the side that she favors. Now, the man can switch from side to side, but it's much more slowly, and there's a little difficulty involved. He basically stays with that one side, that logic and that aggressiveness where the woman uh, favors the side that deals with emotions and nurturing and caring. So we're very different in how we process things, in how we think about things, in how we express things, in how we feel about things. Totally, totally different. Now, the third thing is the caricature of the American male. The creation, the chemical wash and the caricature of the American male. You see, we have this image, this macho image that the man is to be dominant, that he's to always be in control, that he's to always be right, that he's to know everything, that he does not crack nor cry regardless of the amount of pressure. Real men don't cry. Real men don't crack. Real men don't give up. Real men don't give in. And so we have this picture of a man that he always has to be in control <clears throat> of every situation. He has to always be in control of the family and of the events and of the money and of the woman. We get that from in the, the media with John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and, and Stallone. And, and they're simply carrying on this, this tradition of thousands of years, <clears throat> That, that the man is the hunter, he's the fighter, he's the conqueror, he's the loner, he fights lions, he leaps tall buildings, he can do whatever has to be done. Now that is, <clears throat> that's a false image. <clears throat> Excuse me, but that's the role model that the boy experiences all his life. And it goes back thousands of years. That men are taught that they are to respond and react in certain ways. So why do, why do men travel differently? You ever had any arguments in the car? Have you ever gotten upset with a husband because he's driving and he won't saying, what's wrong with you? Why won't you talk? Why aren't we having fun? Well, you, we, and then you try to make him have fun. Well, the man is focused. Remember, he uses one side of the brain. He does one thing at a time. And so he is focused on a destination. And he has got to perform. He's got to conquer. He is headed toward the destination. And he's focused on driving. He doesn't want to talk to you because he, he does one thing at a time. It's not that he doesn't love you. It's not that he's mad at you. It's that he's focused. Same way about stopping for the bathroom. He is not against going to the bathroom. He is not trying to burst your bladder. He is simply conquering 500 miles. He's got to make 500 miles because that's the man. He is driving for that destination and he doesn't understand the problems that he puts on the rest of the group. Why do men hate to be wrong? It's because of self-esteem being tied to accomplishment. To be wrong implies a failure and he doesn't handle failure very well because when he fails, he identifies it with his worth and he says, I'm bad. I've let my family down, I've failed. Because you see, he thinks he must know all the answers and he must not crack, he must not fold, he must not fail. And so when he's made to be wrong, he feels like a failure, so he refuses to be wrong. Why do men hate to see women cry? Well, because men feel responsible for fixing things. You see, the thing, how we offend each other is the man wants to fix the woman and the woman wants to improve the man and both are offended. But the man, because of the way he thinks and the way he processes information and, the, and this, his role is image, then he must fix whatever's wrong. He is solution-oriented. And so the wife is upset. What she is saying is, hear me, hug me, hold me and tell me it's going to be all right. That's what she wants. He hears, fix me, fix the problem, do something. This is a mess. And so he jumps in there and tries to do something and messes the whole thing up. And many times he jumps in there too quickly because, you see, she is saying all this stuff and the first part of what she says may not have anything to do with the problem. Because men and women talk differently. Men talk when there's something to say to solve a problem. Women talk looking for something to say. They're searching out their feelings. That's the way they relate. That's the way they process their feelings. When they start out, they don't know where they're heading. But they're going to talk till they discover where they're going. They're going to talk till they hit the problem. They're not sure what the problem is. So the woman starts talking and the man says, Aha, I got a problem. I got to fix. He jumps in there to fix the problem. She gets mad because she hasn't even gotten the problem. And not only that, when she starts crying, men don't like to see women cry. Well, he say, why? Because he has the fear she'll never stop. What do you do with a woman who cries for 10 years who doesn't stop? How could you handle that? And so women can just cry profusely, and he's afraid it will, it's, it's not going to ever stop. And so he panics. See, men just have trouble when women get upset because of that desire to do something about it. They, something else, men don't like women to get upset because they take women literally. The man sees the, the, the side of the brain that takes things in a logical, literal way. And remember the woman is just talking and she's just, she's just getting stuff out there because she's trying to figure out what's wrong. And she says things like, well, I will never leave this house again. He's saying, oh, no. She is here forever. What will that mean? But she doesn't mean that. She's just talking. She's trying to figure out what she means. So we, we just need to understand each other, and that we're totally different and that we are processing information differently. Why do men seem to care less about love and relationships? It's not that they care less. It's that men define themselves by their work. That's what shows their self-worth. Women define themselves by their relationships. So if things are going bad at work, the man's whole life is going downhill. He's in trouble because he's in trouble at work and he identifies that the man can't fail. He's performance. He He must do it. He must do it well. And so when things are not going well, then his whole emotional life is in a mess. Just the opposite with a woman. Her work can be going great and her career be going great. But if her relationship is not what she wants it to be, then nothing else matters because she gets her identity in that relationship. He gets his identity in the work. So what that means is that you get the idea that he thinks work is more important than you. Not so at all. It's just that from work he gets his self-importance. So it's the most important influence upon his life. One kid uh, complaining to his mom saying, Dad, he won't play with me? She said, well, he's, he's got work to do. He said, Well, why does he always bring home work? And she said, Well, he just can't get it all done at the office. And the kid said, Well, why don't they put him in a slower group? (laughs) Well, it's hard for kids and women to understand why work is, is so important that we come home, we can't just release ourselves. Because it's tied to who we are. We would love to be able to turn it loose. You see, the wife comes home, she wants just to be hugged and relaxed and let's, you know, forget it and have a party and relate and talk. The man can't do that because his work is in a mess. He's overloaded. He's got things that hadn't been done, and that's his worth. And that's what binds him up emotionally. And we just need to understand that if we're going to be able to relate to one another. Why do men not like to talk while they're making love? Because they're focused. Men, keep in mind, men do one thing at a time. Why do they read the newspaper and not want you to talk to them? They just do one thing at a time. When they pay bills, they just want to pay bills. They don't want to do other things while they're trying to pay bills. They don't like one interruption after another because they're focused at what they're doing. Now, women are just entirely different. You see, remember, they access both sides of the brain. They can do several things at a time, like talking on the telephone. One of the, the things that my wife who's nearly perfect, one of the things she does, it just makes me mad as fire, is when I'm talking on the telephone, she starts asking me questions. And being the pastor of the First Baptist Church, I came to say, shut up! I want to, but I can't. So, but I'm frustrated because I'm trying to talk, she's trying to say, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? What does it matter who it is? I gotta talk anyway, <laughs> but I can't talk to her and answer it. Well, what did they say? She's trying to talk to me. Well, I'm. Talk- I can't do that. <laughs> Women, you ever watch along with a telephone? I mean, she can. Especially if they got a cordless, or either in a in a kitchen, they will have a cord that's forty feet long, or a cordless, because they're gonna walk around. And say, do, do, well, they'll lay the phone down a while, pick it back up. Friend's still there, because they just do everything at one time. They can cook, talk on the telephone, take care of the kids. You know, talk to, any, you know, all at one time. That's the way they're made. Men are not made that way, and that presents problems. Why do men hate to ask directions? <laughs> Boy, everybody identifies with that. It's because they're supposed to know. They're supposed to know where everything is, because that's that male image. And so it has to do with their self-worth. They had rather drive 30 miles out of the way than to damage their independence and that image that they're supposed to know where they're going and be able to find their way alone. That's a man. A real man can find his way. So it's, it's how we process and it's our image of who we are. Why do men hate to shop? It's because they're focused. And you see, they want to find it, capture it, bag it, take it home. <laughs> that's, that's men. The, the, going to get a, the, finally, the man agrees to go with his wife and get a blouse. They go to the store, and there's, they find a blouse, and the man's saying, Aha, blouse, got it. Bag it, capture it, bag it, take it out of here so we can get home and do something important like watch television. No, she wants to go look at another blouse. And then she wants to go to another store. And then she tries on one or two or three. He's found it. He wants to capture it, bag it, and take it. She keeps trying them on and goes from store after store. She's imagining where she's going to wear it, what it's going to go with. and all the She may not even buy the silly thing. <laughs> because you see, he's there to hunt. She's there to shop. Big difference. When he finds it, he's found it. Let's do it but not the woman. So that means that 30 minutes at the most is all a man can stand of shopping. Any man who says he likes to shop, I don't trust. (laughs) I'm telling you. There's one other thing I want you to just, just kind of put in your mind. In understanding men is the Father within us. The most powerful influence, the common denominator, the most powerful influence on a man's life is his father. Dead or alive. Every man in this building this morning, every man watching by television, you are influenced right now by your own father, whether he's dead or alive. You see, the greatest validation a man can have is when his father validates him. And many times our fathers didn't know how to validate us. And so we spend our lives trying to get the approval and the validation and the affection of our fathers. Even though they're dead, we're still striving, trying to prove ourselves worthy to be validated by our fathers. One man said, if I could have the greatest wish of my life, it would be for my dad to hug me one time before he dies, the power of the Father. Now, I want you to look at a passage in First Peter, and that was just my introduction, and I've got two hours left, so we've got to really move. Buckle your pew belt and let's move. First Peter, chapter 3. "'Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, that they may be won over without talk by the behavior of their wives.'" when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. It shouldn't be the external. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And then over in in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9 and then verse 19. Better to live on the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome woman. And then in that same chapter, after he gets to thinking about it, he says in verse 19, Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Now, I wish we had time to go into the biblical passages that went that in 1 Peter and then over in Ephesians and in Colossians, where it talks about the wife is to have a quiet and gentle spirit, that she is to be the the loving mate and to fulfill her role and responsibilities as God has laid it out in His Word. But I want to just, just mention three things. We're talking about the intimate wife. Number one, stand alone. It's important to understand that you can't make a happy marriage. You can only make a happy you. Marriages are as happy as the people are happy in those marriages. You cannot make a man happy. A man cannot make a wife happy. You are responsible for your own happiness. You hold the key. Listen very carefully. The bottom line, essential key to intimacy is liking and loving your own self. My friend, until you like and love yourself, you will never be able to really like and love another person consistently. It begins with you. And the way that you learn to love yourself is by having an experience with God where you receive His unconditional love. See, one of the traps women fall into is they're always putting off happiness. As the lady who was recently in our church talked about glass slipper theology the Cinderella syndrome, where I can't be happy now, but one day, when I get married, when I get kids, when I lose 20 pounds, when I get rid of the kids, someday I can't be happy now, but someday I'll be happy. My friend, listen, the only way you can ever be happy is to recognize that you can be happy regardless of the circumstances. You see, it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to what happens to us. Happiness is a choice. Your husband cannot make you unhappy. Not having a husband cannot make you unhappy. You choose to be unhappy. And so the way we get happiness is accept God's gift of forgiveness and in that relationship by receiving Jesus Christ and our hearts and lives, allowing Him to forgive us of all of our sins, to know that we are reconciled to God and we have that intimacy with God, that we are loved with a tough love, totally accepted, unconditionally loved, fully forgiven, fully pleasing, that gives us that security on which to build a relationship with somebody else. The first step is to find personal happiness to understand that a barefoot Cinderella can be happy, that a person in your marriage can be happy. With your situation, your circumstances can know happiness. For you see, no man can make you happy and no man can meet all your needs. You You have an identity. You have a self that you have to learn to love. And when that is secure and settled, then you can build on that relationship. One of the problems is is that that women are trying to be happy and they're trying to force men to do the things that will make them happy, and it never works because a man can't make a woman happy. And the more pressure you put on him, the more frustrated he becomes until he reaches a point where he gives up and becomes passive and the marriage is in trouble. So stand alone. Find your personal happiness, beginning with your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And dealing with your past, letting go of it, moving on with your life. And then with forgiveness is faith. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can cope. I can make it. It's not hypocrisy to act like you want to feel. As somebody said fake it till you make it. Well, there's something about a positive mental attitude. I can make it with God's help. And then facts. Forgiveness, faith, and facts. Accepting things as they are. Not living in a fantasy world, not postponing your happiness to one magical day, not waiting on your prince to come jerk you up and carry you off on a white horse, but facing reality and saying, in this reality I'm going to find personal happiness. The good news is that you can be happy regardless of the circumstances. Second thing is stand by your man. First thing, stand alone. Second thing, stand by your man. That involves commitment. Close all the exits. I'm going to stick with this. Love is a decision. It's a choice. You say, well, the thing that I hear that bothers me more than anything else. Well, I I don't think I love him anymore. The feelings are gone. Friend, you don't base marriage on feelings. You base it on commitment. Love is not a feeling. It's a decision. It's a choice. And just in a matter of weeks, you can change your entire attitude toward your mate just by changing your thinking pattern. Choose to love. All of us are incompatible. In one way, we all married the wrong person. So what we do is we bring incompatibility together, bringing our different gifts and our backgrounds and building an intimate relationship and we move from incompatible to irresistible. Support. Your husband needs incredible support. Honest admiration is the greatest motivator of men. Every man wants to feel that He's appreciated and loved by the one that he loves, by his family. He desperately needs that encouragement, that affirmation, that approval, that respect. He needs your support. He needs submission. Now, I know you don't like that word, submission, and that, I'm sorry, that's a biblical word. It's not mentioned just one time in the Bible. It's mentioned over and over in relationship to marriage. Uh, one lady said the first thing she's going to do when she gets to heaven is trip the apostle Paul. Paul for saying this word submission. Well, that, you need to understand that the word submission is not a bad word. If you look in the secular dictionary, it doesn't sound very good. But if you look at it from the biblical standpoint, what the word really means, it's not a bad word at all. it it means to voluntarily complete. It's a voluntary thing. It's not something you're forced to do. It's to voluntarily complete. It's to blend as to make a whole. It's your part of the leadership team. It's your part of completion. It's your part of God's divine design. And so it's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to resent. We're not talking about blind obedience. We're not talking about a doormat. And it does not mean that you have to indefinitely tolerate significantly destructive behavior. Abusive behavior doesn't mean that. It means that you voluntarily fulfill your role to complete and to blend, to make that whole unit, that one flesh that God designed for your marriage. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www. Fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry.